Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC on the campus of Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. My name is John Shuck, and I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find more information about my congregation at www.fpcelizabethton.org. My interesting guest today is talking to us via Skype from her home in Berkeley, California. She's Dr. Eugenie Scott, and she is the executive director of the National Center for Science Education. She has been both a researcher and an activist in the creationism evolution controversy for over 25 years. She's the author of Evolution versus Creationism and co-editor with Glenn Branch of Not in Our Classrooms, Why Intelligent Design is Wrong for Our Schools. She's going to be speaking in Nashville on October 27th on the topic, the Tennessee Academic Freedom Act and what it means to you. And that speech will be at 7.15 in the Sheraton Music City Hotel in Nashville, October 27th. Welcome, Dr. Scott, to Religion for Life. Thank you. Nice to be here. Tell us about the National Center for Science Education. Uh, when was it formed? Why was it formed? And what does it do? Uh, formed a long time ago by scientists and teachers back in the early 1980s because uh, we were concerned about the um, introduction into state legislatures all over the country of laws that would require that if a teacher taught evolution, she or he would also have to teach something called creation science, which with not very much examination proved to be a um, basically biblical literalist uh, theology that was dressed up as science. The science was terrible. And uh, obviously it's a sectarian religious view that doesn't belong in the being advocated in the public schools. So scientists and teachers and civil libertarians and parents and school board members and a lot of people were opposed to these laws. And uh, in organizing to oppose them, we discovered that it was much easier if we banded together, sort of uh, no sense in Tennessee reinventing a, 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 an approach that had already worked in Minnesota and vice versa. So. Teachers and uh, scientists and other concerned people banding together managed to stop most of these laws, but um, uh, two of them did pass, and uh, there were legal decisions uh, down the line about uh, the teaching of creation science, and when the dust settled a couple decades later, the uh, uh, courts had concluded that teaching creation science in the public schools uh, was unconstitutional, and... Uh, but by that time, the National Center for Science Education had gotten organized because even as these bills were working their way through the courts uh, and even after there had been some decisions uh, striking down creation science, um, these problems still occurred at the local school board level and at the classroom level. And uh, even from time to time, new legislation promoting some form of creationism emerged at the state level. So there was a continuing need for uh, teachers and scientists and knowledgeable people in general to try to oppose these efforts to compromise the teaching of evolution. Now, we the, the founders of the uh, organization decided to give it a very broad name, like the National Center for Science Education, because they thought that uh, 
after we've taken care of this creationism problem <laughs> uh-huh. uh, that teachers and scientists could work together to improve the teaching of science but <clears throat> obviously we're still um, we're still up to our nostrils in coping with the creationism <laughs> issues so that uh, branching out uh, hasn't happened very much um, just this year though uh, we decided to take on another issue that is quite parallel to evolution uh, in the sense that teachers are being pressed to not teach something that has a lot of scientific evidence uh, backing it, and that's global warming. So just this year, we've taken on the issue of climate change as well as evolution, because both of these are topics that teachers uh, get hammered for, even um, when they are in the uh, state standards and local district curricula. My guest, Dr. Eugenie Scott, who is the executive director of the National Center for Science Education, is my guest on Religion for Life. Uh, She's going to be speaking uh, in Nashville October 27th about the Tennessee Academic Freedom Act. But before we talk about that, Dr. Scott, can you give us a little bit of a history of this conflict in our public schools uh, regarding the teaching of science, particularly evolution and, uh, and creationism, say, since the Scopes trial in 1925? I mean, as I understood the Scopes trial, uh, he was trying to teach evolution, and it was against the law. So we've come a long way since then. Yeah, it's been a it's a fascinating history, and uh, there are a number of very good histories uh, uh, about this. I, I have an abbreviated history in in uh, my book, uh, uh, Evolution versus Creationism. As you say, the Scopes trial uh, in Tennessee was held back in 1925 because the Tennessee legislature passed a law banning the teaching of evolution, and uh, the ACLU wanted to challenge that law. So John Scopes was willing to be a plaintiff. And whether he actually taught evolution is one of the kind of interesting little historical quirks. He may he may not have, but oh, nonetheless, really? he was tried for teaching evolution. Um, and uh, people forget because the Scopes trial was such a huge amount of publicity. I mean, it, it, it's a fascinating story. Uh, it was the very first... Um, legal event and actually the first event of any kind I believe that was carried coast to coast on this newfangled thing called the radio and uh, so Mm. a a huge percentage of the American public back in 1925 was glued to their radios uh, to listen to the live broadcast of the Scopes trial it was quite a, a public phenomenon and of course um the uh Clarence Darrow who was the uh uh defender of John Scopes and a very um, controversial public figure uh, was extremely articulate and uh, uh, made, you know, made in many ways made the um, fundamentalist movement in Tennessee look uh, rather foolish. Um, one of the things that he did was put the uh, William Jennings Bryan, who was the, uh, the great orator and politician of his day, uh, and he was he was part of the team that was prosecuting Scopes. Um, Darrow puts Brian on the stand and questioned him about the Bible. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things in the Bible that just make no sense if you accept them literally. 
mm-hmm. like the sun stopping and for Joshua and all that. So, um, uh, you know, a lot of the biblical literalist point of view was was uh, poked great fun at, especially in the press. H.L. Uh, Mencken of the Baltimore Sun being part, uh, being notable in his uh, uh, acerbic <laughs> evaluation of the events of the trial and, and the Tennessee citizens. Um, but what people kind of forget is even if it appeared that the Scopes trial was this great victory for modernism, uh, Scopes lost. And these laws stayed on the books. And fairly quickly, even though only a couple of states had passed anti-evolution laws like Tennessee's, fairly quickly textbooks just quietly dropped evolution from their content. And so, according to the historians, from about 1930 on, uh, you would be hard-pressed to find evolution in the high school curriculum in public schools. Mm. Well, this changed uh, in the late 50s and early 60s because Sputnik went up and uh, the Russians had beat the U.S. to space and this was a great uh, black eye uh, to uh, the American um, uh pride of, of superiority in science and so forth. And so the federal government started funding programs that would improve science education and also improve science research, of course. And the committee that was appointed to revise uh, or put out a model uh, high school biology textbook put evolution right back in again because these uh, the committee members were composed of master teachers and uh, scientists who realized the importance of evolution in the curriculum. So with competent uh, writing of these uh, high school science textbooks, uh, the biology textbooks and, even, and geology as well began including evolution from about the you know, early to mid-1960s on. And evolution uh, also came back into the the commercial textbooks because they saw how well the uh, uh, the textbooks that had been uh, produced by these government committees worked, and so they started cloning them. and And pretty soon, by the early to mid seventies, um, textbooks regularly included the uh, uh, the topic of evolution. Well, this basically stimulated another anti-evolution movement, the, the aforementioned uh, creation science movement, which um, uh, became very active in the late 70s in trying to pass laws requiring equal time for creation science and evolution. And this, of course, uh, stimulated, as we began, the uh, uh, origin of the National Center for Science Education. Now, these laws were gradually beaten back by the late 80s. And uh, with creation science uh, no longer uh, legal to be taught, uh, another form of creationism, basically remodeled or or sort of creation science light uh, version of creationism called intelligent design emerged Mm -hmm. in the uh, late 80s and early 90s. And by the mid-90s, uh, there were a couple of books on intelligent design, and, and uh, it, it, was, it was a fairly active movement. Uh, by the 2000s, they were also trying to uh, influence uh, the inclusion of intelligent design into the high school curriculum. But the major organization promoting intelligent design, which is the Discoveries uh, in, um, the Discovery Institute up in Seattle, um, started pulling back a little bit in the mid-2000s. Uh, um, 
arguing not so much for the equal time for intelligent design and evolution, which of course was the model that creation science had, had used, but I think realizing that intelligent design was going to be as legally vulnerable as, as uh, creation science was, the uh, Discovery Institute proponents um, started arguing for not teaching ID intelligent design, but teaching instead evolution and the evidence against evolution or the weaknesses of evolution or strengths mm. and weaknesses of evolution. They began using this kind of language. And uh, uh, in they, they were wise, of course, to take this track because, in fact, in 2005, the school board of Dover, Pennsylvania, uh, adopted a policy requiring intelligent design. Uh, parents took them to court. Uh, a federal district court judge ruled in late 2005 that intelligent design was just relabeled creation science. Since creation science was unconstitutional, so also was intelligent design. So you can't teach it. Uh, so, but by that time, the uh, intelligent design, the, the shall we say the um, organizers and, and the leaders of the intelligent design movement, if not necessarily the grassroots, had moved on to this um, weaknesses of evolution or evidence against evolution strategy. Which brings us to your, uh, your uh, recently passed law last spring, yeah, but let's, uh, let's, let's, Senate Bill 893, which is precisely this kind of, of revamped anti-evolution bill. Well, let's talk about that in a second. I also want to uh, remind my listeners that I'm speaking with Dr. Eugenie Scott, who is the executive director of the National Center for Science Education. She's talking with me via Skype from uh, Berkeley, California, uh, talking about um, evolution and creationism. And she just gave a, a marvelous history of that debate and bringing us up to 2012 and the famous monkey bill, uh, now law in Tennessee, uh, the law known as the Tennessee Academic Freedom Act encourages teachers to present this, quote, scientific strengths and scientific weaknesses, that the language you just had mentioned, of topics that arouse debate and disputation, such as biological evolution, the chemical origins of life, global warming, and human cloning, end quote. So, Dr. Scott, tell us a bit about this law. What will it do? Um, will it give a pass to teachers to teach creationism? This bill is very similar to about 40 bills, 4-0, 40 bills 40. that we've tracked over the last uh, eight, seven or eight years. Um, and they often use the same kind of wording. Uh, this part, the, the Tennessee bill is a, is a bundling bill, as we call them, because it's not just evolution. Most of them start out that the early ones were just about evolution, but more recent ones have been bundling evolution with global warming and that, that other laundry list that you mentioned, uh, origin of life, uh, human cloning, human cloning. I mean, yeah. how many high school kids study human cloning? Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is okay, kids. Let's do the lab now. No, I mean this is not. You know, stem stem cells is also something that you find uh, in these bills, and and these you know, these topics of of cloning and stem cells are not even given passing reference in in most high school curricula. So what you're seeing is a list of things that the religious right is really upset about. Okay. And that that's kind of the, you know, the the fact that you've got these non-curricular <laughs> items in here is I think a, a good indication of that. So, evolution, global warming, origin of life and these, you know, silly uh cloning and and stem cell uh topics all together as controversial items. And the way these bills are written, 
is they sound so fair and even-handed. Well, of course, give the students the evidence for, the evidence against, a critical thinking exercise, let them decide, let them weigh the evidence. And, you know, obviously everybody wants kids to be critical thinkers. I mean, who's going to say, no, I want my kid to (laughs) be dogmatic? I mean, so, so these bills sound really good. Even the name of it, Tennessee Academic Freedom Act. Bingo. Uh, they're often billed as uh, giving teachers the freedom to bring new material into the uh, 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 classroom. Uh, except, of course, uh, if a teacher were to bring, oh, for example, evidence that uh, abstinence-based sex education really doesn't work. I wonder how popular that would be. Mm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. So there, there's kind of a short list of things that teachers are given given this academic freedom to do. And, and, you know, actually, John, we should just take a moment to reflect on that for a minute, because just like uh, critical thinking, um, our fellow citizens are also quite uh, uh, positive about academic freedom. Academic freedom is a good thing. But when you think about it, Academic freedom is something that applies really at the post-secondary or or university college level. Um, At the kindergarten through 12th grade level, you know, they really don't have much academic freedom and there's a reason for it. Uh, If you're running a K-12 school district and you've got... Um, say you're teaching high school history or high school math or high school biology or English or something, you want to have continuity across the classrooms. Mm-hmm. You want the teachers teaching English to teaching the, teach the same stuff. You want the chemistry teachers to teach the same stuff. You don't want one chemistry teacher teaching oh, I don't know, uh, uh, cold fusion, okay? And right. the other chemistry teachers are teaching straight-up chemistry. And so, so basically, the, at the K-12 level, when a teacher signs a contract to teach in Nashville or Berkeley or wherever, the teacher is agreeing to teach the curriculum of that district. And you want it to be that way. You don't want a whole lot of freelancing. You don't want teachers just teaching what they think is is a good idea to teach because you want that continuity from class to class at the K-12 level. Now, at the university level, it's different. You do have academic freedom, and and academic freedom really doesn't mean you teach anything you want anyway. Academic freedom is is, uh, much more carefully constrained than that. There there is a truth in advertising. If it's a math class, you really should be teaching math. You shouldn't be teaching, you know, French poetry. Um, But just the same, you you want to have that continuity at the K-12 level. So K-12 teachers really don't have academic freedom in the sense that most people think about it. So these bills sound really good, but they're, if you know the history of this um, movement, if you know the history of these bills, it's very clear that these are just ways of trying to get creationism into the classroom through a back door. Hmm. And that's because if you look at the wording of the bills, they talk about the strengths and weaknesses of evolution. Now, I'll bet if any of your listeners go to their local university biology department and say, hello, Dr. Brown, would you please give me a list of the weaknesses of evolution so that I can take it to my high school teacher? He'll just look at you like, what? (laughs) He won't know what you're talking about. There, There is no list of weaknesses of evolution. The only place where you can find the alleged weaknesses of evolution is if you go to the creationist literature. Hmm. And there you get a lot of really bad science. 
you get things like gaps in the fossil record disprove evolution or the second law of thermodynamics disproves evolution and these things that just make uh you know scientists uh you know slap their palms against their foreheads because mm-hmm. it just you know th- this is just nonsense that that has been refuted decades ago but these ideas are still recycled and recycled and recycled by creationists because you know basically since they can't teach uh, biblical creationism the best thing they can do is attack evolution present a lot of bad science uh, that's only found in the creationist literature so that students will will believe that evolution is a weak or uh, discredited idea and then the students themselves will sort of automatically say oh well if if evolution didn't happen then God did it Um, mostly because they don't really understand uh, modern Christian theology but that is the kind of dichotomous thinking that um, creationists have and that frankly most uh, kids have because they really don't know any better. Dr. Eugenie Scott, my guest on Religion for Life. She is the national uh, executive director for the National Center for Science Education. And one of the phrases that's often used is teach the controversy, which is a similar type of thing. But there really is no controversy. I mean, we just should spell this out from a scientific point of view, is there? That's correct. And uh, I, that is the distinction that most people don't. Uh, don't appreciate. There's a social controversy over mm-hmm. evolution, but really there's no scientific controversy over whether living things have common ancestors. And uh, we even have uh, uh, lots of agreement on the pattern of evolution, how the tree of life is branched through time and the major mechanisms. Now, scientists obviously are going to argue about the details, but that's not the kind of controversy that Teach the Controversy is about. Teach the Controversy really is translated as pretend to students that scientists are arguing about evolution. And that's really miseducating them. Okay, because there is none. Now, what about the the practicality of this law and the other 40 you mentioned that are like that? Um, uh, Well, the the vast majority of the other 40 have not passed. Uh, Our allies on the grounds uh, uh, in in all the states uh, fighting these have managed to, uh, to stop them in committee or keep them from becoming law. Only your state and Louisiana have passed these academic freedom laws. Okay, so now, what's what going to happen to us? What we're going to try to encourage people to do in Tennessee, and, and I encourage anybody listening to this program who wants to help to contact me at scott at ncse.com. We have a model resolution that we're going to um, present next month to um, uh, Tennessee citizens that uh, we hope that citizens will take to their local school district. And the resolution is along the lines of, you know, we, the school district XYZ, um, the Board of Education of the school district XYZ, um, will uh, direct our teachers to do such and such. Um, and what teachers are going to be encouraged to do is as they implement this law, that they teach the consensus view of science. In other words, quite frankly, it's a way of, of working around the law uh, in a way that uh, reflects the fact that this law has been passed. But there are many ways that this law can be um, implemented at the local school district level including strengthening the teaching of good science. Now, what we're worried about and what citizens of Tennessee are worried about is that this law will instead be used to uh, bring creationism in by the back door. 
So if P if citizens would be willing to take this resolution to their local school boards, we could get a movement going in Tennessee that I think would help help to head off the worst of this uh, this bill, which that, potentially has some real drawbacks. And that and that resolution is on your website ncse.com. It will be uh, uh, shortly. Okay. So National Center for Science Education, www.ncse.com. Correct. All right. Well, in addition to evolution and creationism, uh, climate change uh, is now on on your agenda from this past year of teaching it, and it has become controversial in this social sense as well. Uh, But again, scientists are – what's the consensus regarding scientists and climate change? You know, the uh, scientists as a whole, according to survey research data on uh, scientists at the uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science, which is the largest general science organization, 90% of them agreed that the planet's getting warmer and people's activities have a lot to do with it, uh, what's called anthropogenic global warming. Um, If you survey just climate scientists, it's up in the high 90s. So in terms of the scientific community, these two principles, it's getting warmer and people have a lot to do with it, that, that you know, the generation of CO2 is, is a major driver of the current very rapid rate of climate change. Uh, these are, are in strong agreement in the scientific community. But because largely not so much of religious ideology, but of political ideology and economic ideology, Mm -hmm. these views are being strongly opposed by uh, a number of unfortunately quite um, well-funded organizations which uh, are trying to convince the public that uh, the evidence for global warming is inadequate um so it's kind of an interesting banding of, of religious conservatives or religious uh, fundamentalists and um political conservatives and economic uh, global corporations working together uh, all making the language in a sense of that bill uh that was passed into law in tennessee very true very true uh there is a you know th- these bills are usually sponsored by people who identify with the religious right which is that intersection of religious conservatives and political conservatives. So the anti-evolution part comes from the religious conservatism, but the anti-global warming part comes from the political conservatism. Because after all, there are evangelicals who are green Christians, who are, you know, with stewardship theology, they uh, believe that God has told us to take care of the earth, and so they accept global warming, and they're really working hard to, you know, to... to uh, um, oppose the kinds of policies that uh, that promote more carbon use. And uh, there are certainly are political conservatives who uh, accept evolution. So it's really that kind of interesting religious right intersection that seems to be behind these bills. And that's a minority. Right, right. <laughs> and it's important that the public realize that uh, the majority really needs to speak up on this. My guest on Religion for Life has been Dr. Eugenie Scott. She's the executive director of the National Center for Science Education, and you can find that website at www.ncse.com. Dr. Scott, thank you so much for being with me and for your work in for science education across our country. Well, thank you so much for having me. 
You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Schuck, minister at First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. More information about this program, including links to podcasts and information about upcoming shows, can be found at religionforlife.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM, Emory, Virginia. Be well.